Today's episode of In the Trenches is brought to you by System 12 Guitar Method. Sign up today at RyanRoxy.com. In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. I am your host. Today is a very special show. But as I let you guys come on into the chat, it's the Ryan Roxy official YouTube channel. Uh, hit that subscribe button there. Vic, our producer, will there it is. And come on into the chat because we really want you to be a part of it today. It's going to be a great one. And if you are listening to us on one of the audio podcasts, whether it's Apple, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, Thank you very much. But we do want you to come over to our YouTube official channel. And um, like I said before, today is a very special episode because although we are used to having musical rock stars on the show, today is no different when I use the term. In fact, you could say we have one of the biggest rock stars of the internet here with us to discuss his new book, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. And much like a rock star, there's been no shortage of controversy, tribulations, and craziness on the ascent upwards. But today, we're happy to have him down here in the trenches. So would you welcome Dr. Jordan Peterson? Hello, Jordan. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much for accepting it. I just, uh, it's one of those moments, you know, and I think we're going to have a great show with it as the people file into the live chat because you do have an amazingly huge following, much like a rock star. You know, <laughs> how does it feel right now to have that sort of uh, that sort of status of being that king of the Internet right now? Well, it's complicated. I mean, I it's an immense privilege. It's completely it takes me aback constantly. This I, this all happened to me when I was, you know, in my late 50s, really mid to late 50s. And it's a it's a very large adjustment. And. And so I, I'm still not really comfortable with it. I've had to revise my identity substantially, and that gets harder as you get older. So I'm not complaining about it, but it's it's complicated. Although there are interesting perks, like I think it's extremely comical that I can talk about rules for living, which is this like conservative boxed-in thing to um, someone who's playing rock and roll music with Alice Cooper and to a rock and roll oriented audience. It's surreal. And a lot of this is surreal. And the internet is surreal and YouTube and social media, all of that. And its magnitude is um, somewhat incomprehensible. I mean, you must experience that to some degree when you're playing in stadiums, I would think. I definitely do have that feeling. But when you, when I take it back to that feeling of structure, like you say, the 12 rules that you have, and obviously 24 now at this point. And, no, you can't uh, have too many rules, you know. <laughs> but we need Everyone them. knows that. As rock and rollers, our life is so structured, if you think about it. With all the time that I've been playing with Alice, uh, our day-to-day is a very structured system. It, we, we have a schedule. It's 6 a.m., wake up, play some golf. Then we go on and do some... Alice does some interviews. If I get to do a podcast, that's great. Slow nap go to the uh, venue, sound check, catering, meet and greet, rock show, tour bus, playing some poker, rinse and repeat. So that's our structure. And it, it is day in and day out when we're on tour. But obviously this, this last year has been quite different for us. Yeah, how have you adapted to that? 
I mean, it must be amazingly disruptive. Doing this podcast has really saved me and the people that support the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, they have been so, um, they've been very, very important to, to keep me out of this, uh, out of this funk because I, you know what, Jordan, cause we, we talk about sex, drugs, rock and roll. And, and there, I found that there's one thing that's more addictive than drugs or any of those things. It's called attention. Yeah. Well, it's the ultimate drug that, Everything revolves around attention. It's the ultimate currency. You know, our eyes are evolved um, so that we can tell where other people are looking. So, you know, if you compare our eyes to the eyes of animals, we have these really evident whites and the iris and pupil stand out against that. And you can tell what someone's interested in and attending to by looking at their eyes. And it's a primary form of communication among human beings and something that's quite unique to us. And that's an indication of just how fundamentally important attention is. You know, even our eyes have adapted so that we can, we can broadcast what we're attending to so that other people can read our minds. So attention is. But even when we're doing these podcasts, I'm, I'm getting that attention. I guess I'm just imagining that there's a lot of eyes looking at us right now or looking at me, and I'm, I'm getting that sort of ego boost. Nothing does, though, replace a live show. And I'm, I'm wondering if it's the same for you with your lectures, because you've done so much uh, online the last couple of years, but you really, really uh, cut your teeth and you were basically in the trenches for many years doing lectures in front of live audiences all the time. And you still do. Yeah, I love doing that. And I did that tour, tour in 2019, um, 2018 and, and 2019, and spoke to audiences all over the world. Uh, you know, the attention issue, it's not just an ego boost, although it is that. And it's also... It's something that you should respond to if you're social, properly socialized. And, and because it is a mark of quality, although perhaps not an unerring one, to produce something that many people attend to. And if you were completely opaque to that, well, then you know, what other people thought wouldn't matter to you. And sometimes that's held up as an ideal. You know, why should you care what other people think of you? But that's foolish. What that really means is don't let ill-advised advice stop you from doing something that's necessary. But that's in a much broader context of, well, if you're doing something and no one's attending to it, well, maybe it isn't very good or maybe you're not communicating it well. And so the fact that you desire that attention, perhaps you're extroverted as well, um, that certainly isn't only an indication of ego. It, it's also an indication of the fact that you care what other people think about what you're doing. And you sort of already indicated that by thanking your listeners, you know, and that's something I've become very uh, appreciative of more and more appreciative of is the support that I've got from the people who are watching my YouTube videos and listening to the podcasts and reading and all of that. It's really, it's been so great. It's so great to have that happen. There's so many people that are supporting the new book. And I am going to start talking about uh, Beyond Order 12 My Rules in just a bit. But first, I want to kick things off with a little bit of full disclosure. 
Um, I'm not used to having clinical psychologists on the podcast. And, and I'm so watching much everything so, you're doing. <laughs> so much so, I, I asked you, what do you prefer? Do you prefer Jordan Peterson or Dr. Jordan Peterson? I think I might have introduced you as both uh, so far. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I guess I do care what other people think very much. So I want them to uh, feel comfortable and feel good here down in the trenches. But um, the thing that I was going to say is that we're both here... I'm not used to having clinical uh, psychologists on the podcast, and perhaps you're not used to being on shows that focus on larger-than-life rock and roll personalities, but uh, we find ourselves here because I'm not only interested in your work, but you yourself have shown some interest in my boss, particularly the Welcome to My Nightmare album. And uh, I was I initially saw an interview with Howard Bloom where you talked a little bit about Welcome to My Nightmare. What was that experience? What was it about that album that interested you about Alice? Well, when, when that album came out, I was a kid. You know, I was about 14, I think. And it was shocking. Um, and, and I remember I first heard it. I, I remember when I first heard any of it, I was delivering papers in my small town and um, this uh, stoned girl was listening to it and um, <laughs> it was really intriguing, but it it's quite a powerful album. And especially for someone that young, you know, it's a, it's a real dr- dramatic piece. There's a couple of songs on it that were designed to be hits on the radio, which was typical for concept albums of that time. You know, they're, the concept album would be the entire album and all the songs would fit together thematically, but there'd often be a song or two that was designed for AM radio to push the album forward. And if I remember correctly, Welcome to My Nightmare had at least one of those on there, but the rest of it was, well, a a whole dramatic world. And it was the investigation of nightmarish fantasy. And it scared me. The album really scared me to begin with. Of a boy named Steven. Yes, yes. It, it took me a, a while to get over that. It was shocking and frightening both at the same time. And, and, but it's brilliantly arranged and it bears repeated listening. I think it's one of the outstanding albums of the 1970s. I, it came out in the, yes, it definitely came out in the 1970s. In the 75. Right, right, yeah. right. And so it had heavy competition because there were a lot of great albums in the 70s, but it, it, it definitely withstands the test of time in my estimation. And it does draw you into this whole dramatic world and great musical artists have their little, they have their universes. I shouldn't say little universes. They have their conceptual universes. There's a Beatles land, you know, and it's it's populated by marching bands and, and animated characters and Monty Python-like comedy. And Tom Waits has his own dramatic universe and it's always three o'clock in the morning and and you're hung over and, and the garbage cans are clanking around outside. And, um, you know, maybe you, you have a foul taste in your mouth about what happened last night, but, uh, and the, it's, it, it's really something to be able to climb into those worlds. And it's really something for teenagers. It helps, it helps them explore the dramatic world. And I think that was one of Bob Ezrin and Alice Cooper's collaborations. One of one of the first collaborations that really, really got into that concept album because Bob Ezrin, fellow Canadian, uh, went on to uh, produce The Wall and many other, you know, huge classic albums as well. But Welcome to My Nightmare sort of uh, started that all. And 
I'm looking at us and I'm thinking, wow, we have the same musical background because I'm a couple of years younger. Your class is 79, I want to say. I'm class of 83. So you would have been basically a senior when I was a, uh, when I was a freshman coming into high school in, in that sense. But that meant we still had a lot of those classic rock influences, I think. You look better for for wear than I do. I think I would have pegged you as younger than that. Maybe it's no. the lighting. I hope I'm going to blame. Oh, it it's all lighting. lighting. It's smoke okay, and mirrors. Okay. It's okay. rock and roll. Smoke and mirrors. You look great, Jordan. By the way, <laughs> it's an illusion. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, I was going to one of my uh, I don't know one of my gotcha questions was going to be, you know, who took whose haircut, you or Bill Maher? Did you take his <laughs> or did he? <laughs> Yeah, well, well, it's been hard to get a haircut up here in COVID locked in Canada, so in Toronto, so. Well, you're in Toronto now, but uh, you grew up in Alberta, and I want to say that uh, I do know Medicine Hat. I believe that's in Alberta. Yeah, it's about 700 miles south of where I grew up, so. Yeah, you, well, a lot of people don't realize that you did a lot, a lot of hard labor up there in the uh, great, great white hope of the North. And I, I live in Stockholm, Sweden, so I know my share of snow in April as well. So, God, we had snow August 6th one year when I was taking swimming lessons. <laughs> well, you know, the name actual Jordan B. Peterson as well. I'm familiar with the B. Maybe some people don't know in our chat and our uh, fans. By the way, thank you so much for uh, subscribing to the channel right now. Uh, we have a Dr. Jordan Peterson with us. What is the B? It's for burnt, which is a Nordic name. I want to say it's Norwegian. Yes, it is. It's my great-grandfather's name. Yeah. What about the other classic rock bands besides Alice? And because you're from Canada, was I mean, I grew up in the Bay Area. Was Rush... Triumph? Were any of those bands big as they were in my little world of California? Were they as big in Canada? Um, Rush was big. I wasn't a Rush fan. Um, and I wasn't a Triumph fan either. But those bands both were big. Um, I, in the 70s, I really liked Super Tramp, especially Crime of the Century, which is brilliantly arranged um, and unbelievably well produced and very melodic and it bears re-listening. Uh, Crime of the Century was a great album too. Uh, and they, they were really popular in Alberta, Super Tramp, for one reason or another. Um, uh, the, obviously Pink Floyd, The Dark Side of the Moon, all pretty much all the Led Zeppelin albums that came out in the 70s were, were major smash hits at that point. Um, Doors, that, it was funny, eh? back in the 70s, um, you, you'll remember this, and I, I suppose this was true until the internet kicked in. Any music that was more than a couple of years old was old, yeah, you know, and true. you couldn't really find it often. Like it sort of, it sort of disappeared in, in, into the distance. It wasn't being played all the time. You couldn't access it all the time. You couldn't find the records even. And so a 10-year-old band was really old in the 1970s. Maybe among, you know, 25-year-old people, that's still the case. But now music is just there everywhere all the time. And, you know, my son listen to music from you know the 1920s right through well whatever time happened to be current when when we were listening to music and all those temporal barriers to listening to recorded music were all gone because of the internet so that was quite cool i always wonder if you think that uh 
perhaps the technology that's opened so many doors for uh, music and, and it actually opens my eyes to a bunch of new bands. I find new bands every day by just going down a uh, playlist rabbit hole. But did it always does it always close the doors as well to because back then we would have to do the research. We really did have to go out. If you liked a band, you had to go out and search for them and you know find the one magazine that would come out a month to hopefully find maybe some words about them. Now you can just go on the internet and find out their net worth. Right, right, and everything else. Well, you know, technology technology has changed other aspects of of musical recording, popular music recording too, because it's it's decreased the importance of concept albums, for example, because the single tends to be the 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 unit of 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 production, even more than it was back before the net. Uh, we people who are listening to music, I suppose, seriously more than you know, top one hundred AM uh, would really get into a a full album. I mean, I used to sit around with my friends when a new album came out especially one that was rather complex. So that may be typically a Pink Floyd album or something like that, or a Led Zeppelin album, which you often had to get accustomed to through multiple re-listenings. We'd listen to the whole album and assess it and analyze it and to the degree that we were capable, but it was an album-oriented experience. And that, and, and of course, all the graphics that came along with the album were also of, of were also an important part of that experience. So it was more theatrical, I would say. It was more of a theatrical experience than just listening to a single. And uh, a lot of, a lot of, well, you lose something because of that. You you gain this incredible access to to every form of music at your fingertips, and that's really something. But, um, but it, with Alice, with with Alice Cooper, did you ever see him live during those days, or was it just that sort of? Uh, step away listening to Welcome to My Nightmare and being a little bit, you know, trepid of, of what you're actually going to see. Well, he also had quite a reputation. I mean, Al, Al Cooper's stage persona and his shows were notorious. I never saw a live Alice Cooper show, but all sorts of rumors circulated about what he did on his shows or what he did in his personal life. And that sort of added to the mystique. And he was a, 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 a controversial character, to say the least. And, and that added to some of the trepidation and fear that surrounded the Welcome to My Nightmare album as well. So I suppose that's all part of what made it somewhat exciting. But for me, the, 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 it was the music that was paramount. I think Welcome to My Nightmare was brilliant conceptually and really unbelievably creative and well-arranged and well-produced. And so that's also extremely nice. I mean, that's one thing. I don't know what you think about this, but I think some of the production... Uh, that was done in the 1970s has never been exceeded or even paralleled. I seldom hear a band recording now where the, 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 the arrangements are so brilliantly laid out in the stereo landscape and so carefully uh, uh, delineated, you know, note by note and instrument by instrument. Th those people were technological, technical masters there was no cut and paste. Um, the, the, the thing that I say that's different from the way I grew up listening to music, starting to record music, and then ultimately being able to play it for a living is that when I first started, I needed to learn the song from the beginning to the end. 
And then all the parts in between, you had to break down, break down. You couldn't just copy paste a part that you thought was cool in the front of the song and then paste it into the end of the song. You had to play the entire song front to back. And, you know, as recording went on, now I'm used to playing a song, recording it, and then only having to record a verse and a chorus because the other stuff can be sort of copy pasted and then it goes on. And it's a really good point that you make because I think it should go back to a more analog sort of mentality. Even though we have such great technology, you can make great technology, things can go quicker because obviously you don't want to be recording vocals the way we did back in the 1980s and 90s with tape because it would take too long to actually get to vocal performance down. But at the same time, I do feel that that having that time to really break down a song strengthened the music. And what do you think about on the technical end? I mean, do you, do you feel that that there that recording techniques and arranging techniques, the quality of of published music now do you think that on average it, it's better than it was in the seventies with the more analog equipment or? I think you, all the, all the uh, digital equipment tries to model what an analog equipment can do. I understand that there's certain things and certain styles of music that have actually benefited from it. You know, for instance, whatever disco is today probably sound even maybe not though because i think they had disco had a little bit more soul i know you're not a big fan of disco but i grew up in the bay area i grew up on am radio i had rock and roll and disco and funk and soul kind of all meshed into one on an am radio uh kfrc i'm not sure if uh, um, alberta had that or you know growing up but uh, i definitely had a a huge spectrum of music growing up. I, I, but, and by the way, I, I got to say, there's so many Canadian bands that I really do appreciate. And, and I know that you like, uh, I, I know that uh, you, you've mentioned Tom Waits before, but. Um, I really liked Arcade Fire. Yeah, Arcade Fire, you said. And there was a, there was a couple other bands. That w- Did you ever get into Sloan from Canada? No. Sloan no, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, when you get older, as you know, it's young people who kind of keep you on the cutting edge of musical appreciation for whatever reason that is. Maybe, I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe they have the time or they have the time and the interest, or maybe it actually is an age-related phenomenon. But my kids uh, also alerted me to all sorts of bands that I wouldn't have found on my own. But I really like, I really like Arcade Fire. I think they're absolutely brilliant. They've, they've produced some albums that are so good that it's, it's really difficult to believe. I think you had said something about a band called Beach House as well as, yeah. as uh, Devochka as well. Devochka, I like Devochka. It's haunting. Yeah. It's got this Eastern European uh, waltz um, um, thing going that's really quite interesting. And uh, uh, the lead singer's great. Um, yeah, I know your son plays music as well, right? Yeah, he's got a couple of he's got a couple of songs online. Julian Peterson. Yeah, he's yeah. got a really good voice and. Uh, it it was it's been great to listen to him sing. It's a real pleasure. He comes over and plays the piano or the guitar, and we sing together. And I love that. It's so great. That's I would love more than anything else. I think to be able to sing. I imagine I can't really imagine that there's anything more fun. In, that's not the right. That's a, such a weak word. Fun. Because. Um, Music is is way whatever music is. It's way much. It's much more than just fun. It's right. great, and to be able yeah. to participate in producing it 
you know, it involves your whole body. Your your you dance to it. You 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 sink your 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 musculature to it. It change changes your perceptions. When you're singing, you're immersed in that patterned, rhythmic, harmonious landscape. Um, it it's it's so transcendental. It's like such a healthy and great thing to do. I'd love to be able to do it. I'm not good at it, unfortunately. I think there's a lot of Jordan B. Peterson fans that would like to hear you sing on a on a song, uh, sing on a record, sing some sort of rock record. Well, I mean, one of the things that's funny, there's this character. First of all, I did release a song on TikTok. <laughs> did you now? All right. Well, dude, Vic, we, do you have a clip we, of that? We, Can we, you put that up? Vic? <laughs> oh, God, don't do that. I sang right. the Philosopher's Song from Monty Python, which is about all these philosophers on a drunken binge and it's a very comical song. And I did it. I put it on TikTok because I was bored out of my skull one day and thought <laughs> that I'd do something um, completely different to, to use Monty Python speak. And um, so that's, that's up there. Um, now you play piano as well. Well, you, no, I'm a complete fraud when it comes to the piano. I would say, look, I can play or I could play the Moonlight Sonata and the Appassionata and one other Beethoven Sonata. But the reason I can play them, and I really can't, because people who can play them are great, and I'm not great. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Don't say dilettante. fraud, because I, I had I, I told you earlier before we started taping that I had Eric Weinstein on, and he he definitely told me he convinced me that I'm I am not a fraud of a podcaster. I am an imposter, which means I have the will to do it, and someday I have. I have the uh, sort of chance that I'll get better at it and eventually achieve what I'm going after. So, yeah, well, that's a really important distinction that you're making there because I do write about that um, in in both books uh, in 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 Twelve Rules for Life and Beyond Order. Nietzsche said at one point, the German philosopher, that every great man is an actor of his own ideal, and there's something in that about greatness in general. So, imagine you do have an ambition, and so an ambition is who you could be calling to you, let's say, and you start to um, put that ambition into practice by doing this thing that you want to get good at. To begin with, you are an imposter, and, and Weinstein emphasizes that rather than a fraud. You're an imposter because you're not good enough at it to be doing it. But how in the world are you going to be good enough at it unless you stumble around in the dark to begin with? <laughs> and, and that now, it might be fraudulent at that point for you to pass yourself off as greater than you are, you know, but you do have to adopt a new identity and in some sense try that on and pretend to begin with before you actually become that thing. And But I don't think that's what I'm doing with my, my, with piano? my piano. No, I, I played these Beethoven sonatas for 30 years. Uh, I don't think I can play them at all now because I haven't really played the piano for t for about two years, unfortunately. Uh, it's too loud. I, I'm too, my, my hearing is too sensitive to really be able to tolerate. I couldn't even listen to music for a long time, which was just a terrible loss. Man, it sucked. It was terrible. You know, it was too loud and hurt. But also the the depth disappeared. I, I couldn't get into it in, in that lovely way that sort of puts you into a trance. One of the things I really love to do is drive um, with loud music on and I can put myself in a kind of, well, I hope it's a safe trance and that I'm not <laughs> posing a danger to everybody, anybody on the highway, but I can look at the entire landscape in a sort of non-focused way and listen to the music and it just transports me. I love that. It, it's, it's, I can do that for hours, but I, 
but I haven't been able to. Anyways, with these Beethoven sonatas, I could eke them out on the piano and, and a passion at it particularly is quite complex, but I can virtually play nothing else. I can do some improvisation. I know some chord structures and I can produce relatively complex improvisations, but fundamentally I'm like a, um, an idiot savant on the piano. I've got a couple of tricks, but other than that, man, um, I'm not there. It's the one instrument I wish I would have learned. It, I, I never did. I bought a Fender Rhodes in Los Angeles. I bought it out of the recycler. It's a, you know, sort of a used magazine where everything is used. You buy it. And I had it in the apartment. And the only song I learned, because I said I would learn at least one song on piano, was uh, Best Friend, Queen. You know? Mm. Yeah, oh, that's another friend. great 70s album, right? Uh, uh, Night at the Opera, man. That's Night at the Opera, Day yeah. of the Races. Oh, my God. Yeah, but but my son ended up, playing piano and he's quite natural and good at it and the thing that's uh, a little bit frustrating is that he's really good at it but has, shows no interest in like pursuing it it's like he's like yeah well I got it now I did it now I'm moving on and that's okay because I want him to you know what you say a lot is I want him to find purpose meaning something that speaks to him and, and go for it because that's what I did with music I, at, at a young, young age, I knew that it was music that I wanted uh, to do. I didn't really have a backup plan s s to say. You know, I, I kind of thought about other options, but music was always at the forefront. And I, I'm wondering, was it the same for you? Or, you know, did you, obviously, you might not have thought of being a clinical psychologist at such a young age, but there had to have been an age where you said, you know what, I do want to pursue this, observe. Well, I took piano lessons when I was a kid and, and I, I was trained by, in, in a classical way. Um, and I wasn't really very interested in, in that classical music. I was much more interested in the kind of music that we're discussing. That, that was really what compelled me. So that took some of my interest out of it. The, the issue with your son is a complicated one because with some skills and musical skills are certainly in that category, it may be that you have to put in a kind of painful apprenticeship before you actually get swept along on your own interest and compulsion, you know, because it's not that much fun to learn an instrument, although it's very fun to play one. It's also not that much fun to learn to read, you know, because you, you have to struggle to identify the letters and then to put them together in words. And it isn't until you can kind of glance at whole phrases without having to undergo that painful conscious processing that the intrinsic interest kicks in. And so when you're thinking about your son, that's, I, I don't want to give unwarranted advice here, but I, yes. I really am, I really am in favor of let your interest take you where it takes you. But there is this element of discipline that's also necessary for complex skills. And so with children, it's complicated because you want them. It's such a gift to have musical skill once you're an adult. And you have to ask, well, how much is it worth torturing your children to get them to develop that? And the answer is probably quite a bit because it's such a gift. I mean, my son and my daughter has musical interest as well. It was harder for her because she was really ill for most of her childhood. So she couldn't pursue it to the same degree that he did. But, you know, it makes up probably about a quarter to a third of his life in terms of what brings him along and compels him forward and he gets to perform and he's good he's a good guitar player and and he's credible on the piano as well uh much better at it than me he, with with much 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 less practice on the piano per se and so you think with your kids well you know how much do you crack the whip 
we, we, we put Julian in piano lessons when he was young, about four, and it was a struggle because he was a strong-willed kid and he didn't necessarily want to sit there for half an hour. But um, it was easier for him for singing. That was more compelling for him. And, and that's where he got most of his musical education. And that's been great. It's a great gift to the family. It's wonderful to be able to go over to his house and to have him play and to for all of us to sing together great. I think he actually sang a really great rendition of So Lonely at your graduation. At his grade eight grad. Yeah, you saw yeah, that, did you? That's I did. on. Oh, dude, that's I do my you. research, man. Uh -huh. if, I, if, if I am going to interview Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, I'm going to do my research and go down that rabbit hole. And it's a great version. I, it's somewhere on the internet. It's in the ethers there, but you can yep. find it. You can it's find it. It's unbearably cute as far as I'm concerned. And one of the things I loved about watching him was he was so self-possessed as a performer. He just got right into the music and he, he keeps the beat really carefully and and he's he's sunk right into it. It makes him it's hard for me to judge, of course, because I'm his father and you know, you, you just can't overcome a bias like that. But But how do you how far do you push, Jordan? Because this is this is what's interesting me because I've never pushed my daughter to, um, I have a son and a daughter, and my daughter, I've never pushed her musically, but her voice is just one of those natural really good sounding voices and she turns me on to all these bands she's the one that turns me on to cave town cage the elephant blackpool all these indie bands that are come sort of come from a little bit from my generation but she's doing that on her own volition but how far do you push kids i mean before it becomes tiger woods father and is tiger woods father making tiger as great as he is is that the right thing to do or is it, where's that line? God, wouldn't it be lovely if we could figure that out? You know, I mean, I would say for every child that's over encouraged, there's a thousand that are under encouraged, you know, and You obviously don't want to push so hard that your relationship is disrupted. And so to some degree, you have to calibrate your interactions with each child. And you do that even with discipline. You know, some children, you can just shake your finger at when they're misbehaving and that'll stop them. And other kids are really stubborn and put up a really remarkable fight. And so there's not even a universal prescription for disciplinary measures. And there's wide cultural variation in in that in the answer to that question as well. I mean, Asian, first generation Asian immigrants have um, disproportionately successful children. And it looks like the reason for that is that they push and they instill in their children conscientiousness. And that gives them what's equivalent to about a 15 point IQ advantage. That disappears by about the third generation, by the way. Uh, so I think I think we probably under push as a culture. That's, that's my sense. But it's very, very difficult to tell. And I think partly we under push because, well, there's, there's first this misapprehension that if you discipline your children, you'll destroy their creativity. And that's just not true. That's, that's based on a misapprehension of creativity. And I also think often it's an excuse for not engaging as well. You know, I don't want to push my child too hard. It's like, well, yeah, really, you just don't want to take the time. My father spent an awful lot of time with, with me when I was a kid, three, four, five, six years old, especially learning to read. And it was a tremendous gift. 
to me and I'm, I'm thrilled that he did it, but, and he had extremely high standards, but I don't think he pushed me at least with reading. What he did was encourage me. And that's a skill and a gift to manage that with your children, isn't it? To encourage them. That's that balance. I'm, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of people uh, right now listening to the show that have kids that are dealing with this day in and day out because it is that, where do you, where do you cross that line? Where, where is it? Where you think, you know, okay, I'm just maybe becoming, uh, pushing too much of my dreams onto my Well, kid. that's another thing you can do exactly is live out your unlived dreams through your children. Look, you shouldn't be any easier on your children probably than the world is going to be. Because you're wow. not doing them, well, you're not doing them my, a favor. No, no, my wife would love that 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 advice because she she's wanted actually to ask you wanted me to ask you about your sort of feeling on consequences. And this sort of becomes about that, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, you're exactly right when you say that, Jordan. Well, if you, if you, if you overprotect your children or if you're too forgiving and, you know, in our culture, it's hard to believe that there could be such a thing as too forgiving. You don't prepare them well for how they're going to be received in the world. And there's definitely something useful in setting high standards for your children. And look, you do this with your partner too. You want to set high standards, but you want to modify them so they're achievable. And you want to be participating in that game as well. And you can tell if you're pushing too hard, you're going to demoralize the child. And if you're not pushing at all, well, then, well, then you're not there. You're, you're not attending to them. And so you want to set high standards that are also attainable. But even having said that, there's still a gray area um, that, that's very difficult to play with. Are you able to apply all these um, values, all these ideas? I think you are. Obviously, you, you've done it now with not one, not two, but three books. And the newest uh, being the, the 12 more rules beyond order. Um, do you address a lot of that responsibility, finding purpose, and sort of rules in these books. And, and who do you think it's for? Would it be, would it be not just for, uh, not just for one demographic of, of, of audience? It's for everyone, I feel. Yes? Well, that's my intent. And, and it's also for me, you know, while I'm writing, and I think any book, well, writing for me is a form of thinking. It's not like I think things up and then I write them down. It's the, the writing is part of the thinking. And so I'm thinking about ethics because I'm thinking about how to behave. And, and that's for me too. And so I'm clarifying my own thoughts while I'm writing these books. And then I share that process of clarification with everyone else and walk them through the thought process, which is that, that, that makes the uh, argument that's being presented more compelling, I would say, because the development of an argument is like the telling of a story. Well, we start here and then we investigate a, a large number of propositions and we end up here and maybe you find the voyage convincing and enlightening and hopefully that would be the case. But I'm certainly including myself in the audience that the books are targeted at. I'm, I'm not saying, well, here are the rules that have enabled me to master my life and I can deliver them to you. It's These are... Con the question of how to behave and why to behave in that manner, what rules to follow, what ethics to to what ethics you might adopt to guide you is very, very complicated. And well, it, it's worth thinking through. And I'm 
guiding the reader through the process of thinking that through in the books. And it's there for everyone, as far as I'm concerned. Um, some of the rules in the new book, uh, imagine who you could be and then aim single-mindedly at that, might be more relevant to younger people who are just formulating their educational plans and their career goals. But, you know, our, our identities shift and change with time. And so through your life, who you could be tomorrow is still going to be a question. Well, like you said earlier, your, your huge success has come later in life. Do you feel that that's a bit of a, a blessing or a curse in some ways? It's both. Um, it, it's, um, what would you call it, ungrateful to dwell on the curse part of it. You know, it's, it's sort of the poor celebrity story. Um, I've had a lot of negative attention, um, and that's uh, damaging, I would say, and difficult to cope with. You never know when that's going to take you down. And so my family's also had to put up with that. Uh, I think what's happened is it's really expanded the breadth of my experience. It's made it more positive and more negative. It's, it's multiplied it. You know, and I was successful in a satisfying way before all this took off. Many years. Know, yeah, uh, many years before. I was going to say, it's not like you haven't had experience since, the, you know, so much successful experience. Harvard uh, started started speaking um, and, and writing books. In fact, your first book came out in 1999. So it's been, you know, it's been a long run. It's just that it's sometimes that window of where people go, oh, and, and it happens all the time with bands too. Like you'll hear a new band and you'll say, oh, I love this band. Uh, when did they come out? And you'll find their history that they've had five, six albums out already. <laughs> Right. What's the joke? It takes 10 years to produce an overnight success, <laughs> something like that. And, you know, what happened in two things happened, I guess, in conjunction is I started exploring YouTube and it's such a powerful technology. I mean, obviously we're making use of it now. It's, it's a revolutionary technology for communication. And I put my lectures on YouTube just as an experiment. And I also thought, well, why not? I'm giving these lectures. They're popular because I was fortunate enough that my lectures were popular. And I thought, well, I might as well make them accessible to a broader audience. And that was partly just curiosity. It was like, well, here's YouTube. And it's full of, at that point, it was like mostly cat videos. <laughs> and I thought, um, well, I, what ha what'll happen if I put these lectures up on? I thought that a lot in my life. What will happen if I, you know, do X? And so I had this back catalog of lectures and, and then I made some more political uh, videos. Um, uh, criticizing some legislation that was coming into Canada that I thought was based on a misapprehension of identity from a psychological perspective and also interfered with freedom of speech. And it was the conjunction of those two things with this back catalog that produced this spiral upwards. You know, people came to my YouTube site because of the controversy, but then they found this back catalog of lectures and that probably saved me from the political uh, catastrophe to the degree that I was saved from it, which still isn't all that evident. But that's, but you actually took that technology and made it your own because, you know, there's not a lot of 
clinical psychologist rock stars out there. When you think of YouTube stars, or that's or that's the thing I wanted to say. When I went on to your even your own Wikipedia says clinical psychologist and YouTube personality. <laughs> Those two things. When when I think of YouTube personality, Pootie Pie. You know, or, or you're thinking of Logan, uh, or you're thinking Logan Paul, or you're thinking of, you know, wh- whoever. But, you, but now you have to include your name in that, in those sentences. And it, this is what brings me to this point of so many similarities of your ascent uh, from a rock star and you. You have very many uh, similarities, if I could say. You, you both have, you know, in general, you both have huge fan bases with devoted followers and attractors. If you, if, if, if I must be honest. And, oh yeah. um, <laughs> yes. Well, there's there's no doubt that there are detractors. Yes. But you know, you have two million Instagram, three point five million on YouTube. I think you've sold close to six million record or six million records. Here I am, uh, six million books. Um, you know, between. Uh, 12 Rules for Life. Well, and, and some uh, records, right? That's funny, too, because <laughs> you know, you know of Akira the Dawn? No. no. Oh, well, no. you have to do your research. You see, I am. Damn it, did I miss that? You did. No. You did. Akira the Dawn does this music called Meaning Wave. And he uses Alan Watts um, as well as me and some other people as well. And he takes our lectures and sets them to, to music. And there's dozens of songs. And so that's really interesting. I, I mean, I've, I've been in touch with Akira a number of times. Um, I'm, I don't have anything to do with what he's doing, except that it's okay with me. And, and it's really interesting to watch. But he's also, he did crowdfund a while back to raise money to produce a vinyl album. And I believe that it's coming out in, well, maybe this month, if I remember correctly. So that's quite funny. So I, I do have some <laughs> records. records, And hey, this so- meaning wave... Um, my wife likes it. Yeah, there you go. That's it right there. My producer's on it. My producer didn't miss it. I, 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 I didn't catch it. I do a musical-related uh, inter- interview with Jordan B. Peterson, and I missed that. You right. missed my recording oeuvre. Yeah, that's, that's not good. That's not good. <laughs> so you can Alice feel Cooper. guilty about that after the show ah, if you want. I'm not supposed to feel guilt. No guilt, right? Yeah. Or, 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 some, or feel some guilt. Where do you stand on that? Feeling guilt or not feeling guilt? Because there's Oh, guilt, man. But look, there's you need boundaries on that. All the negative emotions can go out of control. Look, it's like philosophy of punishment. How bad should you feel when you did something stupid? You should feel just bad enough so that you don't do it again. But no more than that, because it's it's there's no utility in it. Like imagine that the 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 functional point of feeling regret is to alter your behavior in the future. And then think further about that. You might think, well, what's the purpose of memory? And you would say, well, it's to remember the past, to provide an, an accurate record of the past. And that's not right. That isn't the purpose of memory. The purpose of memory is to stop you from doing the same stupid thing again. Yeah. And so if you've learned your lesson, you should let yourself off the hook. And I also think that's a good rule for forgiveness. It's like if someone has transgressed against you, your partner, say, in a marital relationship or a friend for that matter, a child, anyone that's in repeated interactions with you and they do something wrong, you know, you might ask yourself, well, when do you let go? And the answer is, well, when when they stop doing it, you know, when, when they've learned their lesson and then you let it go. But no more then, than that. Well, any more than that is unnecessary. 
right it, it, it what is it going it, it, it what it starts to do is to it, it produces damaging consequences that aren't productive and I, I think that's really useful it's like well have you have you learned your lesson yes well okay then you know with my son for example when we used to discipline him um, we'd put him on the stairs kid quit that you're 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 causing too much trouble go sit on the stairs he'd be angry about that and I'd count. You have three seconds to get on the stairs. And he'd say, don't count, don't count. <laughs> and, and he'd go sit on the stairs and then he'd get himself under control. And um, we used to let him up as soon as he would behave. So the rule was sit on the stairs until you get control of yourself and then come and talk to me and tell me that, you know, you're ready to be a civilized human being. And, and that's the end of it. And that worked out fine because we could, st look, if someone around you does something that isn't acceptable, you can't just ignore it. What the hell good is that? Especially if it's a child, if they're doing something that's disruptive and, and would, would make them unpopular with their friends or with any other adults. You, you want to put that's a stop. That's one of your to, rules, right? That, isn't that one of the rules that you have? That you don't, don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Yeah, and that's something you would, should talk over with your partner if, if you're lucky enough to have one because, you know, maybe you're kind of arbitrary and everything makes you dislike your children, you know, because you're touchy and volatile. But roughly speaking, you know, if your child does something that you don't approve of, what makes you think other people will approve of them? And then you have to ask, well, do you want your child to be approved of by others or not? And, you know, a cynic might say, well, you know, you don't want to um, turn your child into a rampant conformist and crush all their creativity. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's not the point. You, you want your child to be unbelievably welcome in social groups. You want everyone to want to play with him or her. You want that. And so then yeah. you have to modify their behavior very carefully. And if they annoy you, well, probably they're going to annoy other people. And like you want your son to be annoying? <sighs> That's not good. good. Yeah. 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 And I, I can't be the only one there, folks, there in the going, yeah, that's what I need to do. I get it. Well, we really tried it with the kids with humor, you know, because um, there, there was a lot of exchange of jokes in our household. And the kids were always in on that. And we tried to teach them the fine line between, you know, funny and annoying or funny and mean, because it's a really fine line. And, and actually, the better you are at being funny, the closer you get to that line. But you have to attend very carefully. And then there has to be consequences. And you have to say, no, look, that's that joke's not, not funny anymore. You've taken it too far. And, 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 and well, that, that, you know, harks back to our discussion about how far you go with kids you 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 go as far as you you can and be competent your child is so starving for your attention it's just kids will do absolutely anything for attention and so your attention is so valuable to them and you can spend that helping them become better children then hooray that's what you should be doing apparently so will guitarists <laughs> yes definitely <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you should respond to your fans, right? I mean, why wouldn't you? They like you. They're on your side, and they're they're for true. you, and and they'll tell you if you listen to them, at least to some degree, what what you could produce that they would be appreciative of. And so, of course, you should care what they think of you. Now, obviously, you can take that too far. What do you feel about delaying gratification? Because it seems like with me. Uh, playing on stage, it just seems like immediate gratification. You just want that, and that's where that's what I've missed in 2020 is not being on that tour. But what? Do you, how do you feel about this 
delaying gratification if it's going to help you out more in the long run. Well, it's a human conundrum, isn't it? It's 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 this thing that you never quite get an answer for because, you know, you can forego gratification and save up for your retirement and then be run over by a bus tomorrow. And it's like the Spence thrift down the street who had three holidays in two years, you know, and, and spent their retirement money. They're laughing at you because you're dead. And, and so what good is your money to you? And so we're always caught in this terrible bind of how much for now and how much for later. And well, how do we solve that? Well, we consult our conscience that's it. You consult your conscience and listen to it. You try not to lie to yourself, you know, because you know when you're burning up tomorrow for today and in a counterproductive way. And, 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 and then also, even if you do want a certain amount of immediate gratification, you talked about your tour. Okay, so you go on stage and you get that immediate gratification, but you have a structured and ritualized day around that. Right. And you have to be on the bus. Like you can't be in such yeah. bad shape that you can't get on the bus and you have to get some sleep. And so, you know, you're delaying gratification all the time there in order to make the times you do get to be gratified sustainable and repeatable across time. And I think you, if you're honest with yourself, you know when you're doing that, you're sitting there playing a video game or, or, or maybe you're on Twitter or whatever it happens to be. And, you know, you start to get uneasy because you know there's something you should be doing. You're not playing the game you set up by the rules you established. And then, then you get uncomfortable with yourself and then you brush that off. It doesn't matter. I can, or I can get away with this or I'm not going to pay any attention. And then that just makes you feel guilty and stupid, which it should because, you know, you're doing things that aren't good and you are stupid. So you should feel that way. Um, I don't think delay of gratification for its own sake is a good thing. And if you can find a way to be happy, it's like more power to you. But but I also think that almost all the time people find happiness when they're pursuing things that are worthwhile rather than when they're pursuing happiness. Well, you, you say that a lot, or at least the conveying message in a lot of the books that you write and a lot of the lectures that you uh, put on and videos that you make. Make a plan, you tell people. You say it's important to make a plan. Now, yeah, well, Otherwise, other people will make plans for you. So, you know, there's, there's not no plan. You know, if you're not, if you, if you're not the captain of your own ship, let's say, well, then you're just acting out the plans of, well, all the people that advertise to you on the internet, for example, or who manipulate your attention in one way or another, while you're engaged in impulsive gratification. So, so no, it's, it's better to make a plan, even if it's a bad plan. And that's, that's something that's really useful to know too. Make a bad plan, implement it. Well, that's the best you can do right now. Okay, so you implement a bad plan. What do you learn? Well, you learn exactly why it was bad. And that's really useful. And so then you make a slightly better plan. And that's another part of being a fool voluntarily. It's like, well, I, I'm willing to take this risk and do something. Should I do this? And this I've learned as a consequence of being a clinician. I really learned this because you might ask yourself, well, what if I don't know what to do? Should I just wait until I know? And what I've observed is that's not a very good strategy. You should take the best stupid plan that you have and implement it. And then... It's okay learn. to be the fool. It's okay to be the fool. It's necessary. Well, look, every time I've done something new in my life, and I've done that, you know, uh, starting to be a, a graduate student and teaching instead of being a student, then being a professor instead of a graduate student, then 
entering the business world and speaking to managers and, and corporate types, which I did for decades and, and expanding my clinical practice and then going on YouTube. And every time I've done something new, I didn't know what the hell I was doing when I started. And I felt like a complete fraud, but not a fraud, right? An imposter. And I, in some sense I was because I, I should have had more expertise to, than I did to be doing what I was doing, but you have to start somewhere. And, you know, people are actually very forgiving of that as long as you're not arrogant about it. If you're a beginner, yeah, well, if you're a beginner and you say, look, um, I'm doing my best, but I'm stupid, and here's a bunch of things I don't know. Generally speaking, the competent people who are in that domain will help you. Now, if you put on airs and you pretend to knowledge that you don't have, and they can see that because they actually know, well, then they're, gonna, they're not going to help you because they're not going to trust you. But if you're a genuinely blind beginner, then anybody with a decent heart who's real is going to help you because they were blind beginners at one point too. And in all likelihood, they found someone to help them. So I would say to young people out there um, in TV land, so to speak, like make a plan, man. And, and if it's bad, don't worry about it, but stick it out and learn, and then you'll make a better plan. And, and maybe reach out to help from, from people higher up and they will pass the torch on to you, whatever it is, the torch of rock, the torch of knowledge, what, you know, they will help. And you, you are right because I do get that a lot from people that, uh, whether they DM me and stuff, they'll, they'll ask advice and I will do my best to always, uh, return. Responses. Why? Why do you do that? Because I, I really want people to live for me. I want people to experience the same sort of joy that I've been able to experience doing what I get to do for a living. And so why do you think helping other people with that is a positive thing for you? I don't know so much. I, I just know yeah. that I, I, I just feel that perhaps don't follow in my footsteps but, but know that it can be done. Because if people try to do things the exact same way I did, I guarantee you it's going to be very hard to, to make it to any sort of point. Because I've, I, I always say, you know, how did you get the Alice Cooper gig? And I say I was at the right place at the right time, but I was in about a thousand wrong places at wrong times before that. Yeah, so and that's standard. Wrong, that's exactly standard. Yeah, every wrong turn that I could do, I get, and I don't know if my sort of pathway to where wherever I'm going, because I still haven't got, I don't feel I've gotten there yet at all, um, is is based on that. Don't follow in my footsteps, but look at my footsteps and see that they can actually get to a certain point. You know, and well, you, being in a lot of the wrong places at least puts you out there in a lot of places, and virtually true. everybody who's successful has had a success you know, in one place, they've, they, and they've, they've, <laughs> the success is embedded in a landscape of non-success. It happens all the time. I, well, it, it, I, I put up a bunch of answers on the website Quora at one point, which is a website where anybody can ask any question. And, um, you know, your answers get viewed by a number of people. And almost all my answers were viewed by very few people, but a couple of them were viewed by a lot of people. And, what, the one that was most viewed is the one that I turned into these two books. And so I made 50 answers and 45 of them were failures. You know, they weren't because some people looked at them and, right. and it wasn't obvious which ones were going to take off. And that's 
being in the right place at the right time. Because you have to match what it is that you're selling has to match what it is that people are buying. And you, you can't predict that ahead of time. And so that's another reason to put yourself in the game. Um, you know, it's a lottery in some sense, but if you buy enough tickets, there's some reasonable probability that you'll, you'll win on one of them. Well, you've always been sort of ahead of the game when it comes to that, because you maybe it's because you've been willing to try these new things. Like I said, in 2013, you know, way before YouTube was a thing, you, you started it and you, and you put out, well, you did a TED talk. I can tell you another thing about that, that, that I, that maybe will be helpful to people. I've also really tried hard not to be um, counterproductively contemptuous. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, you know, among my academic colleagues, because I've been involved in various business ventures for decades, um, and with a certain degree of seriousness, not as much perhaps as someone whose livelihood is dependent on that business alone, but my clinical practice was a business and I have these suites of self-development tools online and, and so on. And so there is a business aspect and, and many of my academic colleagues feigned a kind of contempt for the business world and they would phrase it essentially in, in moral terms you know, how can you work with the business school? Uh, those evil capitalist types basically selling out, marketing, selling, and all that filthy stuff that's associated with capitalism. And then, you know, among businessmen, I'd see the same contempt for academics. It's like, well, they live in an ivory tower and what they do isn't applicable to the real world. And I thought, well, look, it's actually really hard to be a successful academic. It's not easy to teach, especially to teach well, and it's really difficult to publish. It, the, the rejection rate for most scientific uh, venues is like 95% if they're high end. Uh, you have to work a lot to be successful, like 60 hours a week. And it's the same in the business world. It's hard. And you, you can have contempt for people who sell and market and who sell out, but the probability is pretty high that no one's ever offered you the opportunity to sell out. And they won't because you don't have anything to sell. And what good is it that you do have something if you don't know how to sell it? And so, and, and it was the same with talk, about talking to the press or, or engaging in, in more public interactions with the media. I saw the same sort of thing again among my academic colleagues. It's, well, the press always gets it wrong. It's like, well, no, not always. And maybe they're just not that interested in what you have to say. And you have this skepticism about them to protect you from that. And so I always said yes to things. And I wasn't contemptuous of them. And, you know, and then I'd enter into the business world and find out I just didn't bloody well know anything. Like I had no idea to begin with that if you have a good product to offer people, you've solved about 5% of the problems you have to solve in order to make something successful. And I completely underestimated the difficulty and necessity of sales and marketing. And I have tremendous, tremendous respect for people who are good at both of those things. Yeah, no doubt networkers. I mean, you're yeah, talking about this. thing, you know, it's not who you know, or it's not what you know, it's who you know, and that's contemptuous. It's like, yes, it is who you know, because if, if I talk to you and you know 30 people who are really competent in something, you're a great problem solving resource, man, because you can say, well, go talk to this person and like make a Rolodex. Well, that's the old terminology. Keep your contact list updated and and this is really true as you get older and older and, you know, maybe you rise up in a particular hierarchy, the connection network that you have around you becomes of unbelievable utility. So, 
So, and you should note that that's something of value, your social connections and not be contemptuous of it. You have to really look out for uh, the, the narrowing effect of casual contempt. I say something similar to that uh, when people ask me about being in a band and how can I get to, to get in a band? I say, be friends and remain friends with the people you're playing with now because they will get you into your next gig in one way or another. It's good to not have, uh, you know, complete animosity towards your bands that break up because there will be, uh, I've played about a hundred bands, 98 you never heard of. Right. But with those bands that I play with over the years, I've managed to um, maintain friendships and so many of those friendships and musician relationships have gotten me to the next band. You know, I got into Alice Cooper on a, you know, recommendation from Gilby Clark, who I was playing with. So, and and Gilby was playing with Guns N' Roses at the time, but I had played with Gilby back in the 80s in a band called Candy. So, these things run deep, man, and you're right. It's, it's, you do have, all those things that I think would think have negative connotations are actually positive. And you Yeah, well, you're you're contemptuous at your peril. You know, I mean, it's really, it's a really nasty thing. I mean, I also see with my books, the mainstream media critics in particular are often contemptuous of my audience or my, my supposed audience, you know, and they say, well, it's, you know, young male incels or something cutting like that. And I think, well, even if it was just young male incels, do you think that like, what, those are untouchables or lepers or something like that? They're supposed to be shunned outside the walls of the city and never spoken to? Uh, and that that contempt is really a bad thing. I, I really think it's driving political division to a great degree. Um, I think it lost Hillary Clinton the election in 2016, you know, because she was contemptuous of the basket of deplorables, many of whom were hypothetically the working class audience that the Democrats were actually supposed to serve. And I see the same casual contempt between people on the right and the left now. And I, in, in Beyond Order, in my new book, the first chapter in particular, which is uh, do not carelessly denigrate social institutions or creative achievement. You know, it's an argument for paying attention to the people who, to the people who aren't like you politically or temperamentally, you know, so the liberal types um, are more creative, generally speaking, that that's a predictor of liberal affiliation. And I think the reason for that is that um, more creative people like information flow. So they like loose borders and that sort of tilts them in a liberal direction politically. Whereas the conservative types, they're not so interested in information flow. It, It doesn't capture them the same way. And they're also more orderly and, and, and conscientious, but you need both those sorts of people. You need the right. entrepreneurial liberal types to start enterprises and to rejuvenate tired and desiccated institutions, but you need the conservative types to run things efficiently and to keep track of detail. And those are really different sorts of people and diverse. There's where diversity really lies in temperament. And 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 it's hard for people of different temperaments to understand each other, but they're, they're necessary. That interplay between the temperaments is unbelievably necessary. And you should develop an appreciation for it. And the way you talk about conformity, it's another one of those things. It's, it's not a bad thing because you equate conformity sometimes with peace. Yes. Well, look, 
maybe fitting in isn't the best thing. But not being able to fit in is a complete bloody catastrophe. You know, and with your children, you don't want them to be drones of the system, but you don't want them to be so peculiar and ill-behaved and erratic that nobody can stand being around them. And so it's, a, you know, this is, this is another one of these paradoxical situations that we all have to contend with. You have to be, and should be, acceptable to others, desirable to others, and that should drive you hard. But then by the same token, you don't want to sacrifice your essential integrity and, and individuality to the demands of the crowd. But you have to be aware of the virtue on both sides of those things. And, well, I think that before you can be really different, you have to be disciplined and, and able to conform. And then maybe you can get past that. You learn the rules first, and then maybe you can break them. Do you think that you'll go on another one of these book tours? And the things that you're saying right now, I could see this being a live show. I could see this being a tour, you know, maybe not as big or because I, cause I question myself, will it ever be like it was in 2019 touring or, you know, years before, are we going to get back to this point where we can meet in a huge social gathering without being paranoid? And because so many of these ideas, I can see you, you know, standing in front of a large audience and people really taking it in. Well, I'd love to do it. I, I really I really loved the tour. It was extremely intense. Which is another rock star thing that you did. You did an actual 160 city world tour, which is so Yeah, well and, and, and yeah, well in all these venues I went to, these theaters, these beautiful old theaters, they were places where all the people who I admired in the artistic community, musical community particularly, but some performing community as well, they had all played. So that was so fun to go backstage and, you know, in most of the theaters, there's a wall where everybody who's performed has there, signed. Yeah, pretty, yeah. And so yeah, we, that's so cool to see all that. And there were hundreds and hundreds of famous names at all these great places. And so it was great to see backstage. It was such a privilege and to be able to experience that. You know, and I do have kind of a jazz improvisation form of lecturing. You know, I have these stories and concepts that I've worked on for a long time probably mostly through writing, but also through practicing them in, in speech. I can draw on them and then so I can kind of aggregate something original on the fly and pay attention to the audience at the same time. And well, you must know what that's like as a musician. You know With how improv, yes, but we well, need structure as well. Well, absolutely. But you know, you get to the height of a performance, if you're lucky, where you're playing the whole auditorium because everybody in the auditorium is on sync with what you're doing and you can feel that you can you can feel that when you're when you're in the audience at a concert you know they say the whole place is rocking and that's exactly <laughs> what's happening because everybody's on the beat and they're all in the same place and and can you feel that at a lecture absolutely can, man absolutely if you killer. but you you get that and i'm sure this must be the case for for musicians you get that when you're at, when you're also attending to the audience because you have to be reacting to them. There's this mutual reaction. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so, and when that start, when that kicks into the right groove and the whole place gets rocking, that's when it's like a religious experience at a musical show. 
and it really is like a religious experience. That's, that's, yeah. uh, that's exactly right. And so a lecture can be like that if you're really communicating with the audience and, and you, you have to watch them individual audience members to be able to do that. And you can't just be reading like, or, or even citing, say, stating something that's been memorized because it detaches you from the audience and you can't bring them into the groove, whatever that is that's occurring. But it's great when that happens. It's, there's nothing better than that. It's great when it happens and all the notes fall into place. And I'm sure for you, it's all the words fall into place, but you know, sometimes don't the words get jumbled and it comes across a little bit, eh, I missed a note here. Oh, definitely. Well, and there are <laughs> notes too, right? Because look, part of the reason we respond to music the way we do is that our our speech has is musical. Right. All the, you know, you don't like listening to someone who's just speaking in a monotone with no cadence or rhythm. And the reason for that is that there's no melody and the melody carries the emotions. And so when you're speaking, you want to get the rhythm right and you want to get the melody right as well as the words. And I think part of the reason that Akira the Dawn has been able to set my words to music is because I do speak rhythmically. And when I write a book, I read all the sentences out loud and I listen to them to see that they have a beat. So that's the poetic element of the writing, you know, to the degree that I've managed that. But you can tell if you have managed that because you can read the sentences out loud quite easily because they have a, a, a rhythmic cadence that matches, matches your capacity to generate speech. And so if you do a good lecture, you have to get that, all that right, the rhythm, the, the melody, the, 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 the explicit content, and then also the attention to the audience and bringing them into the discussion. And you wow. can tell, you know, you look at someone in the audience when you're speaking, just like, when you're having the conversation we're having now, you and I are both checking each other out constantly to yeah. see if we're understanding what the other person said. And if we're on this, if we're on the same wavelength and if it's working well, we both get deeply engaged in the conversation. And if you and I get deeply engaged, it's fairly probable that the audience will too, right? We found that because really what we're doing is dancing, you know, you can see that on stage with musicians when, when you know, the singer and the guitar player or, or, or whoever, two musicians in the band, just get into each other. It's almost as if the whole audience gets into that, into that moment as well. Definitely. Well, and we're really good. Human beings are really good at in, inhabiting other people's bodies, you know. <laughs> and so when we're watching a movie, essentially what we do is we... we we see what the character's up to. We, we identify their goals by looking at their actions. And as soon as we identify their goals, we can make them our goals. And as soon as we do that, we can feel the emotions and the motivations of the character. And so we're in training ourselves physically with the person on the screen and we can experience everything they experience. You do that in, and you also see in music that dance because many musical pieces, there'll be the guitarist will do one thing and then another instrument will respond. It's like a dialogue between two people, or, or sometimes it's more than a dialogue. And there's often other voices underneath, but there's a statement, musical statement, and then a musical response, and then a statement, and then a musical response. And there's a speech-like element to that as well. So, Well, let me ask you, because now I'm, I'm really curious, because I have these huge musical influences that... 
I've looked up to since I was a kid. I, I always say I, I, I looked at the posters on my wall. I wanted to become those posters. And eventually I was able to make a living and actually playing with some of those posters, you know, some of those guys and on, on, the, on those on my wall. So I have these huge influences, Cheap Trick being one of them, the Beatles being others. You have, and, and I think some of my playing and my songwriting reflects that. I know as a psychologist, you know, Carl Jung, he's a big influence on you. Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche is a big influence. Do you feel that those two are uh, big, big influences or do you have more? And do you feel that perhaps when you're speaking, does, do their styles come through, even though it's different? Do they come through a little bit? Well, you? lovely if they did, you know, I mean, you, I, I'd certainly, I'd certainly aspire to that. Um, the, Jung and Nietzsche were geniuses of sort of unparalleled proportion. And so to think that comes through is, would be what presumptuous, uh, that's up to other people to decide. It's certainly something that I would aim at though. I mean, that's the thing about picking your role models, isn't it? Is that you get to pick who you would like to be be like, like to become. And, and really, in some sense, that's, if you're really being educated, that's what you're doing is you, you find these people, and we're so fortunate because they can be people who are already dead, and we have their records of one form or another, sometimes actually records. <laughs> you could say, well, I'd like to be like that. And then you mimic it and, 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 and learn from doing that. And maybe you can add something original to it if you're, if you're fortunate. I mean, I've been deeply influenced by many, many, many people um, that I've read particularly, but also who mentored me, my, my, my mentor at McGill, Robert Peel, who's still alive and still a very close friend, taught me a tremendous amount, was a great source of encouragement. Most of what I've learned, um, uh, I would say intellectually, has been a consequence of books. Um, on my website, there's under books, there's a list of recommended books. There's about a hundred of them there. And so I've, and you know, I tell people, if you want to be educated, you could go read that hundred book list. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to know everything about everything or even anything about everything, but you're, you're, you've got a good start. If you read those books, you'll have a good start. Some of them are extraordinarily difficult and others aren't. And I've been overwhelmingly influenced by by what I've read. Uh, dozens of, almost all the great clinical psychologists have had a profound influence on me. And that was also something, I was never contemptuous about a particular, like a school of psychology. I learned a lot from the behaviorists, really cut and dried scientists, right? They weren't into dream analysis or any of that mystical stuff. They were hard nosed scientists and everything had to be defined exactly and simplified and brilliant, elegant, concise, practical thinking. Uh, every term defined. I really like Carl Rogers. He taught me a lot about how to listen. Abraham Maslow about values. Um, Freud, because Freud delved into dreams and was so interested in pathological family dynamics and overdependency. And you see that play out in clinical practice all the time. I loved Jung because of his unbelievably expansive imagination and his, his unparalleled uh, creative intellect. And Nietzsche, because of his way, way with words, he, he was, he, God, you know, Nietzsche bragged at one point, he said, um, I can write in a sentence what it takes other people an entire book to convey. And then he said, no, that can't even be conveyed in one of their entire books. 
And right. So, so he was he, a rock star. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, he had this e- unbelievably egotistical statement, which he immediately topped by an even more egotistical yeah, statement. I'll but the thing, the thing about Nietzsche is it was true. Like right. he has sentences that, that just, they just unwind in your mind, like a, like a stick of dynamite. So he was Prince, basically. You're saying you're saying that he was Prince. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. In his own philosophical world. And it's great to find people like that and, and to be humble enough to to admire them. And you know, that's well, that's part of the pro- problem of being cynical and contemptuous of history, too. It's like, well, man, you could learn, just think you could model yourself after the great people of history. But you'd have to admit that there's such a thing as great. And you'd have to admit that people who came before us could be in that category. And then you also have to admit that you're not in that category yet. And maybe never will be, which is a hard thing to admit, you know, and, and disheartening. But if you do admit it, then all of a sudden, hey, look, man, the, the world is open to you. Really, it is the case. You, you have to beware of casual contempt. It's a terrible mistake. What if you, if you accept the possibility of failure, I think it helps you with success. I think if you can accept the fact that you can definitely fail and fall flat on your face, it'll help you get to your goal. I've that. Well, that's another issue that's so complicated when you're raising children, you, you don't want your children to fail, but you don't want them to be unable to tolerate failure because if you try, many times you're going to fail. <laughs> you could take Homer Simpson's advice and just stop trying as a consequence, right? <laughs> what did you learn, Bart? Never try, you know. No. So you you want to you want your children to do things that are difficult enough so that they don't succeed sometimes and 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 still be able to tolerate that. Um, the thing about failure, though, my my experience with failure so far has been that I never really did fail at anything I actually tried. Now, what I mean by that isn't that I necessarily got what I was aiming for, but I usually learned something that was extremely valuable that I could then use for something else. And, right. and I, I think that's, look, you can get unlucky and, and you, know, you can fail so hard that you can't recover. That happens. Um, I mean, look, people die, right? And sometimes they die because they fail at something. It's, it's, a, it's real. And it doesn't always make you stronger, you know, to fail. Sometimes it just wipes you out. So it's a real danger. Can't but, always be a fortune cookie. Yeah. Everything I, I say, everything that you read can't always be helpful advice. Sometimes it does suck. Yeah, and sometimes it sucks and there's very little to be derived from it too. Well, you can tell that, as I said, because people die. Sometimes the news is so bad that, you don't recover from it. And, but, but that aside, my experience has been, and I've watched lots of people too, is that if you put your heart into something and discipline yourself in the pursuit of that goal, you'll gain all sorts of things that you can bring to your, na- to your next venture. And so most dedicated effort isn't wasted. So that's a kind of optimism, I would say. Well, we're so glad to have you back. Um, I know it's been a tumultuous year uh, for you, and it's great to see that the new book, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life, is uh, out now, and it's coming 
like I said, to get real quick with the books, um, there's some rock and rollers books, go-to books all the time. And I saw that a few of them were on your list, but one of them wasn't. But I, I, I saw George Orwell. You have 80, 1984 on there. You have uh, Brave New World, uh, Atlas Huxley, I think, as well. Um, or wait, that was Atlas yep, Huxley. Yeah, Atlas Huxley. And, but you did not have, what, oh, there's, there's it is right now. Vic, our producer, is putting up that list. And, and there's so many people that visit the uh, book list every single day. But also, one book that was left out, I feel, and I just wanted to maybe put in it in a suggestion box, but what are your feelings? Because it is a very rock and roll uh, sort of book. Uh, and maybe you can guess what I'm going to say, or you know what it is. But, no, uh, no, I don't, I don't okay. know. Anthony Burgess. Ah. Anthony Burgess, uh, however you want to say it. Uh, that would be A Clockwork Orange. Now, Right, Burgess I've, also wrote on music. Directly about music, and you can you can tell that too. Uh, well, remember, Clockwork Orange has a b- brilliant musical score by Philip. Uh, no, by uh, oh, it, you talk about the Kubrick, the Stanley Kubrick movie, yeah, the, Stan- the Kubrick movie, yeah. yeah, it was put to synthesized classical music. Um, mm-hmm. Transgender composer, um, I, I would say maybe the first famous transgender person, uh, Wendy Carlos, Wendy Walter Carlos. Damn. Um, um, Your research staff is better than mine. The music that was set to Clockwork Orange, which is brilliant. Uh, she yeah. or he, he to begin with, she later, um, uh, produced a synthesized version of the Bach Brandenburg Concertos, which is great, I think. Uh, the Brandenburg Concertos are very complexly layered, brilliant piece of music, uh, multiple pieces of music. And if you use a synthesizer, with each change in musical phrasing, you can assign a slightly different tone. And so it adds a level of complexity to the an already incredibly complex piece that acoustic instruments couldn't manage. You know, the acoustic instruments, they have their great advantage, right? Because you can make them sing and you can bend and distort them in this yes. way that's almost alive. I've read actually that we process musical instruments perceptually using the same systems that we use on living organisms. Hmm. So for us, musical instruments are actually a kind, a kind of living thing at a, a very deep neurological level. And you can kind of see that with an acoustic instrument because, and great, great musicians are so good at this. They, they'll take a note and bend and distort it almost to the point where it's dissonant and uncomfortable. And they just play with that edge of, of consonance and dissonance. And that's, well, that's part of the way they show their expertise and their willingness to go, you know, out to the edge of a boundary. And that's very exciting in a concert too, to hear someone do that. They put that rough edge on something and it's just oh. about breaking in some sense, right? They oh yeah. Of, it's just I, I about watched, ready to fall off the tracks and then exactly. it comes back on. That's, I, that's the mark of a good solo. I watched, um, um, white stripes. Um, yep. who, who's the, who's the main Jack white. Jack White, he had had a documentary about one of his tours and he showed how he set up his stage, which I thought was so interesting. He had this old beat up guitar that was barely hanging together. Uh, the, the termites in the wood were holding hands and that was the only reason it wasn't collapsing and he could hardly keep it in tune. He had to tune it all the time while he was playing, while he was on stage. And then he put the instruments on the stage that he would run to in difficult to get to places to put these obstacles in front of him to make it more difficult on stage. But the consequence of that was that he really had to pay attention. 
And there was this interesting distortion and trouble that sort of ran through the music, which I thought was, you know, brilliant and unexpected and extremely interesting. And you hear that in Tom Waits too, because every time I hear a new Tom Waits album, I think, oh, Jesus, you've finally gone too far. It's just too much. It's too dissonant. It's too harsh. It's too, <laughs> it's, it's nails on the blackboard. It's, and then I listen to it three or four times and I think, oh my oh, God, you know, okay. it's so bloody brilliant. Yeah. Well, if you want to hear some dissonance, uh, I'm definitely inviting you to the next uh, show we do in Toronto. Actually, to, when when the Alice Cooper band plays Toronto, we love that town. It's it's quite quite nice, and uh, I don't know if it's ca- still called the Molson Theater, That's the theater. outdoor. Yeah. yeah. That's a great it's, place for music, eh? It's a great, great venue. Yeah. yeah I saw absolutely. Alison Krauss there, and that was really fun, and a, a variety of country music folk at, at that particular venue, and also... Uh, who else has played there that I saw? Um, uh, now that now that's going to run out of my mind because I want to call it to mind. But yes, that's a great place to listen to music. It's lovely yeah. to do that outside. And hopefully we'll get lucky and we'll be able to do all that again soon. Yeah. And who knows? At one at one venue, because we get we do get to play a lot of those theaters that you were talking about uh, with Alice Cooper as well. So um, hopefully our paths will cross Jordan Peterson. It's been more than a pleasure having you on. I want to talk a little bit about the book and uh, just where people can get it right now, because I know that you have some socials on there. Uh, Vic, our producer, can put up all those social media uh, tags right there, folks. If you want to check out Jordan B. Peterson, the B is for burnt. Uh, Berent. 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 I, yeah. I have some Norwegian friends that say the same thing. I know that. Um I know that, Dave. But I wanted to leave with one of your quotes from your TED Talk. And this might have been your first TED Talk. Because I think my takeaway from it was it's really important for everyone to hear. Follow what you're interested in. It will confront you with adversity, but will change you from a citizen to an individual. And then the doors will open again. Am I close in saying that? And was that you? That sounds like something I might say. Okay. I love that because it is hopeful. At the end of the day, you do with, with your books and, and your knowledge, you are giving hope to a lot of people that need it. Well, I, wouldn't that be lovely if that was the case? I, I'd sure be uh, pleased if that, that happens because, you know, a little more hope would be a lovely thing and a little more encouragement to people. I think we're bombarded constantly by... I think really anti-human messages, you know, about our guilt for the destruction of the planet and our, the horror of our existence as a species and our contemptible nature and all of that. And, you know, fair enough, fair enough, we can be destructive. And, but we have a hard lot to bear and we do pretty well given everything we have to put up with. And I think it's much better to encourage people than to discourage them and to say like, you know, there isn't anything wrong with your ambition as long as it's allied with care for other people and honesty and more power to you. And, you know, you can bring out the best in yourself and others and that'll make the world a better place. And, and I, I believe that. And, and it, it's, it's very, uh, it's a very positive thing to see the effect of that kind of message on people. And it looks to me like people are starving for it. And that's unfortunate, you know. Well, I hope the new book, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life, does spread more of that. And uh, 
you're able to promote it throughout 2021. Jordan, uh, thank you so much for being on In the Trenches. Um, hang on for just one second. And uh, everybody here that's been able to see this uh, very special episode for me of In the Trenches. Hopefully it was a special episode for you. I want to thank uh, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson for being our guest today. Uh, go out and check out uh, Beyond Order 12 More Rules for Life. Uh, thanks again, Jordan. My pleasure. Yep. And thank you for having me on your show and, and for take, stepping out of the, the trench to talk to someone who isn't a musician. <laughs> no. It's been so much of a pleasure, and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Thanks for talking, Alice. Thanks for talking rock and roll. Thanks for talking kids. Most of all, thanks for talking knowledge. I'm Ryan Roxy. Until next time, enjoy the ride. In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello. Moby, give him his guitars back.